I haven't met you. I'm one of the uh, pastors of our church, and it's wonderful to have you here on this Easter Sunday, um, especially if you know, you're, you're here and church isn't something you typically come to, uh, but Easter, you know it's probably worth going to. So welcome to you, particularly if that's, if that's you, but also welcome to our regulars. I thought uh, before we get started, um, uh, there's, been, there's a bit of a traditional greeting in the Western church uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, when one person uh, says to the second person, I wish there was another person here with me, uh, uh, the, they would turn and, and they would say, uh, he is risen, and then adopting another personality, uh, the person responds and says, he's risen indeed. And it's a greeting that's been said uh, uh, throughout uh, the church in the West, uh, including the Catholic churches and the Orthodox churches, just to celebrate and acknowledge the fact that on Easter Sunday, uh, we are celebrating not a dead, uh, uh, a dead Savior. Uh, we're, we're, we're celebrating a risen Savior, and we say that to each other. So, uh, as we kick off, why don't we all stand up, turn to the person next to you, and one of you can start by saying he's risen. The other person can respond. Then you can, then you can do the tag team and swap. How's that sound? Let's do that. All right, fantastic. Grab a seat, grab a seat, grab a seat. You said that with such gusto. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, he's like barely risen at this point. He's like, just, he's like just woke up, really. No, 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 it's fantastic. Good, good to have you here and welcome again. Uh, we'll just start, I guess, from looking at God's Word. Um, last year, there was a report that was published from the journal Royal Society Open Science. Uh, that's, that, that journal uh, and the report that was published looked at conclusions to a study that looked at 30 years of data. And what was the topic they looked at? Uh, they looked at the topic of pop music. Right? They looked at the topic of pop music. Now, what did the study find? Well, uh, after uh, studying uh, 500,000 songs released in the UK over the period from 1985 right up to 2015, uh, and uh, they, they, they looked at all these songs that were released over these 30 years, and they examined the acoustic categories of music. Sounds kind of technical, don't really know what that means. Uh, but they examined the acoustic categories of music and the moods that come from that. And one of the key conclusions they came to was that, was that there was a downward, this is a quote, a downward sonic trend in happiness and an increase in sadness. In other words... Uh, happiness was down, but sadness was up. Uh, it looked at chirpy band. It gave an example right back to 1985. I've never heard of this band, uh, but there was a chirpy band by the name of Wham! Exclamation uh, mark. Back in, back then, do people know it? Some somebody somebody. I'm sorry if I just insulted you. Um, but there was there was a chirpy, really optimistic band called Wham! Uh, and, and that kind of gave way to eventually the, the man that's on the screen there, Sam Smith, moody, a moody artist. Uh, just as a, a, a side note, uh, the song, his song, Stay With Me, rated among songs with the lowest happiness index of all time. Right? Fascinating, right? Now, I wonder if that's true of your experience of music. Right? Have the songs that you, know, you hear on the radio as you're going for a drive or whatever, have, have you noticed that in general they've kind of been on a trajectory of being increasingly sad? Uh, the Associated Press link that, that I found there also said that there have been other studies in pop music that uh, focused on lyrics, right? lyrics rather than the actual moods and the acoustic sounds of the, the, the melody. Right? And they came to really similar conclusions. They concluded that 
while the use of positive emotions have declined, at the same time, uh, you've got loneliness and social isolation indicators on the increase. I wonder uh, whether those findings, you know, it's a very, very long study, 30 years, I wonder if that's really a surprise to us, those conclusions. I mean, once we look maybe beyond the music industry, it doesn't take very long, does it, to see that our world is broken and that there's a lack of hope. I mean, just looking at Australia alone, rates of mental illness, depression, suicide are all in the up. Uh, Black Dog Institute, a research institute in Sydney, released its statistics sheet about some of the issues that it researches, and, it, and some of them... Uh, some of the statistics that came up said that one in five Australians aged between 16 and 85 experience mental illness. Every day, at least six Australians die from suicide, and a further 30 people attempt to take their own life. Depression is the number one cause of non-fatal disability in Australia. And that's a few of the stats among the many. And when we think about that and we feel that and perhaps some of that captures your own experience, it can all feel rather hopeless, can't it? The world we live in has always needed hope, but perhaps in our lifetime, despite living longer and in general much wealthier than the generations before us, it seems like we need hope more than ever. And so as we come to Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the risen Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to come and see the hope that comes from the empty tomb of Jesus. And so to just give us a bit of a roadmap, we're first going to look briefly at the concept of hope before looking into our first point that we all need hope. And then we're going to explore some of the ways the empty tomb offers a hope that's unique. And so if you'd like to follow along, it'll be on the screens behind me, screen behind me. Uh, and so would you pray with me as we do that? Because that's a bit of an ambitious endeavor. So let's pray. Uh, Father God, we do thank you for... Uh, the risen Lord Jesus. Thank you for the songs that we've sung that, that cause us to reflect on that, uh, the stories that we've heard and the lives that's been changed uh, because of that as well. Father, we pray that uh, for some of us here who uh, have struggled with hope, that might find hope difficult um, to, to experience in our own lives right now, Father, I pray that the hope of the empty tomb might be uh, both confronting but ultimately comforting. Father, we pray that all of us today might get more of a glimpse of the hope that you offer in the risen Lord Jesus. We pray that you might speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin, what do we mean when we speak about this concept, this idea of hope? What do we mean? Now, uh, I think if we break it down and we speak about hope, it usually has two separate but related parts. Right? Firstly, when we talk about hope, it's, it's generally something to do with what we expect to fulfill our desires, what we expect to fulfill our desires. The Oxford Dictionary, uh, that's a good place to go, defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. Right? So you've got those ideas, expectation, desire. And when we move beyond you know, more shallow hopes, like we hope the weather tomorrow will be good because it's a long weekend, uh, deep within us, there are hopes that are core to who we are. Things that we expect and are sure will satisfy our deepest needs. Right? That's the first part of hope, that it involves deep desires, it involves deep expectations. But the second part of hope, when we break it down, is that these hopes, they're, they're yet to happen, right? They're future-based. 
Even though we have strong expectations uh, that if or when we get there, we will be satisfied and our desires will be met, because it hasn't happened yet, it remains hope. That's the second part of hope. It's, it's future-based. So it's about desires, it's about expectations, it's also something in the future. And so now that we've kind of got that uh, in, in our minds, I want you to imagine this scenario with me. Right? Imagine that there's two people, right? person A, person B, and they're given the exact same job. Right? Uh, they have, they're, they're placed in identical rooms, and those rooms have identical conditions, identical temperature, identical lighting, and they're given the same task to do in both those rooms. They're, they're given uh, nails, to ham- one nail to hammer into wood, and when they're done, they pass that to somebody else who takes it. That's, that's their job. But person A gets an annual income of $1,000, and person B gets an income of $10 million. Right, that's the difference. Now, both are working, and you know, day three into the job, they're having a lunch break together, and person A says to person B, uh, isn't this a terrible job? It's tedious. It's boring. It's kind of hard to do. What do you reckon? Now, what would person B reply in that situation? What would they say? Well, they'd say, no. Right? No, actually, um, I, I really like my job. I'm looking forward to the year ahead, actually, because of my job. It's great. I even sing when I work, you know. See, what's the difference? What's going on? See, they have identical situations. But they interpret and they experience those identical situations really differently because of their expectations of the future. Their hopes, in other words, are different. Now, the reason I give this scenario isn't to say that we all need good income, although that's great. But to show that, there is also a third part when we break down what the the idea of hope is. That third part is this, that our hopes for the future radically control how and what we experience today. You see, friends, to put it another way, deep down, we suspect this, I think, uh, we all need hope. We all in our day-to-day lives are unavoidably hope-based we all have or set expectations and in, and, and, and in some way um, for our future and live today in light of that. And so the question for us isn't, you know, isn't whether we hope or not hope. The question is, what do we put our hope in? What have you placed your hope in? And before we get to that question, I, I want to make clear that I believe that there are, there are actually many legitimate hopes that people can have in their life. There are many legitimate hopes. And, and so you're not going to hear me say today that there's only one legitimate hope, and that's Christianity. I'm not going to say that, because there are many ways that we can set hopes and dreams and live in light of those things. But I do want to suggest today that as we think about where we place our hopes, like many things, um, there's a spectrum. There are hopes that are shakier, right? And there are hopes that are stronger, that are less likely to fall on itself. They're all legitimate, and they're all legitimate ways to hope and to live, but I want us to question whether the hopes that we have and live in light of, whether they lean towards being shaky or more towards being strong. Let me give you a couple of examples of this spectrum of shakier and stronger hopes by sharing some stories from two marginalized groups in history. Right, The first group, the Jews in World War II, who were exposed to death camps. And the second group, and the African community during times of slavery. Right? So first, uh, we'll look at the Jews from World War II. Now, um, Viktor Frankl, maybe you've heard of him. 
He's an Austrian Jewish psychiatrist, and he's a survivor of the Holocaust and the death camps. And now, while he was in the death camps, he noticed his fellow Jews uh, all responded really differently. There were some who lost hope, who, who gave up, who curled up and, 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 and eventually died. There were others who, who gave up their hope uh, and then decided to, to side with the enemy. And there were still others who, in the face of all of this difficulty, kept hope and endured. And, and Frankel couldn't work out um, why this was the case. And so after World War II, when it was all over, he, he wrote some books where he came to a conclusion. What was that conclusion? He said that if somebody's hopes were placed totally in things from this world, if that's where they drew meaning in life, things like material things, things like possessions, accomplishments, status, even family, what would happen is the death camp completely took those things away. The death camp stripped you of all your possessions, all your assets, all your achievements, all your status. It took away the relationships of those that you cared most about. See, if somebody's hope was based completely in those things, Frankl observed, then they likely lost all hope. Or, and lost all meaning, curled up, and, and eventually died. Or they gave up and so changed allegiances to get some of that back again. Now, obviously, that's an extreme case, right, in history. But Frankl applies this to all people as well. He makes the point that if our hopes are completely in things in this world, then suffering in any form, suffering in any form, can take that from you. Right? You name it, right? It could be relational betrayal, financial difficulty, sickness that enters your life or a life of a loved one, things that are beyond your control like the economy or a war, or any combination of those things. When any form of suffering comes, Frankl argues that if our hopes are completely in the things of this world, then we will not be able to bear it. They act like mini death camps in a way for us. But he doesn't stop there. He, he thinks back to one particular man who endured the death camps. Uh, this man survived, right? Survived with him. Uh, but what kept him going was he had a belief. Uh, he's lost his wife, but he had a belief that his wife was in heaven looking at him. And that because his wife was in heaven looking at him, he couldn't let her down. That was his hope. Now, we can talk about you know, whether that's believable or likely. I still think it, on the spectrum it's really shaky. Um, but the fact remains that the death camps couldn't take that hope away from him. Because that hope was not from this world. And that gave the man the strength to press on. See, coming back to, to Easter for us today, I want to suggest that similarly, if our hopes, if our hopes are based on things that are completely in the things of this world... Those hopes are shakier hopes. Because if our hopes are based completely in our world, it also means that the world can completely take it away from you. So they're the Jews. What about the African community during times of slavery? Right? Historians look back at that community and, and in, in their time of slavery, and they consistently talk about how, in general, they were just such hopeful people. What did they place their hope in? The consensus is that they often place their hope uh, in their future with God. Now, I want you to stick with me, right? We are talking about God. But what was it about God that offered uh, them in their slavery hope? 
How did their future with God give them the resources to remain hopeful and endure in what is an overwhelmingly difficult present? Here's a few ways that it did. Right? Uh, their hope gave them a real measure to know that what their masters were doing and the behavior that they did uh, was morally wrong, even though everybody in the culture around them was completely supportive of it. Their hope told them that even though as a mass group, chances of them are... Uh, 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 no longer having to be slaves, or if their circumstances completely changing, systemic changes, right? chances are that wasn't going to happen. But the hope that they had gave them a belief that God would enact justice. That the wrongs of their masters would in the end be made right. Their belief in life eternal also with God meant that they would ultimately be reunited with loved ones that they'd lost. And that they'd be with their God forever. Um, an African-American scholar, famously, he said this, their faith, their faith taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, their slavery, and all its cruelty could not crush. What do you make of that? I know for some of you right now, you might be going, well, that's, that's good for them. It's great for them. But for me, that's hardly, that's hardly believable. Uh, I'll come back to whether it's believable or not in a little bit. But for the moment, let's just put that aside for a sec and appreciate how deep that hope is. Even in slavery, in immense suffering, through this hope, they had the resources to endure the difficult life that they had. And I wonder, isn't, isn't that the strong hope that we, we kind of all want? If we look within, don't we also want a hope that is unshakable and helps us like that? C.S. Lewis captures that desire really well. Uh, you may know him as the famous author of the Chronicle of Narnia series, right? Uh, but during World War II, he gave a series of radio broadcasts that were later transformed into a book, uh, which has become a bit of a classic, a classic piece of literature in the 20th century. Uh, in it, there's a chapter called Hope, and he writes this. It's a fairly long quote, but it's worthwhile. So, um, he writes, most people, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longing which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm, I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry may have been a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. It's a long quote, but I hope you... Did you catch that, right? Lewis captures, I think, what the African slaves held so tightly to. He captures also what uh, the Jewish man, in his shakier hope, believed in his wife looking at him from, from heaven in the death camp. What is he capturing? 
He's arguing that deep down within us, we need a hope that is beyond our world. A hope that is otherworldly. Why? Because the hopes that are based completely in our word either don't satisfy, or even when they do, they are only temporary because we feel they are not enough, or that they're eventually taken from us. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced some of that in your own life. And so today I want to invite you to what I think is the strongest, most functional hope that is on offer to us. One that isn't shallow, one that isn't shaky, and and this hope is deeply connected to the message of Easter. And that's the title of of our talk today, that that are in your outlines as you came in. It's the hope from an empty tomb. The hope from the empty tomb of Jesus. And so we're now at our second point. Um, The unique hope, the empty tomb offers. And so we're going to turn to our passage today, and and from the biographical account from the historian Luke, I believe we see a couple of reasons why the hope of the empty tomb, or the resurrection of Jesus, offers such strong hope, and offers it uniquely. Uh, And the first reason is this, the hope from the empty tomb is believable. It's believable, it's rational, it's intellectually credible. Which, I guess, in, the 21st, in 21st century Sydney, that's a pretty big claim, that it's believable. But friends, in the first part of our reading today, um, we, saw, we saw two visits to Jesus' empty tomb. Right? The first visit was by a group of women, who Luke names in verse 10, we, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and there are others. There's this group of women. Now, what happens when they reach the empty tomb? Well, we read that when they first enter the tomb, after seeing the stone had been rolled away, and the fact that there was no body inside, their response wasn't to go immediately, oh, Jesus must be alive. Jesus, Jesus isn't here, so he must, have, he must have been raised. That's not their response. Luke tells us what their response is, and we see it in verse 4. Um, uh, yeah, see it in verse 4. They, Luke writes that they were wondering about this. You're wondering about this. The word in the ancient language that is translated as wondering uh, captures that the women were not were wondering, they were certainly wondering, but they were doing a lot more than just wondering. They were confused. They had a confused state of mind. They were at a loss. They were in doubt. They were uncertain, which, you know, completely fair enough, the body's not there. Even Peter, our second visitor to the empty tomb, in verse 12, we're also told wonders to himself what happened. Now, you can probably imagine for both the women and Peter, as they walk into the empty tomb for the very first time, their brains are starting to tick over. What could explain this? How does this make sense? See, for both, both of them, both groups, the women and Peter, they're looking for evidence. They're looking for hard evidence. They didn't immediately believe that Jesus rose. They needed an explanation that fit everything that they saw. They needed evidence, right? And now we might think that, you know, people living in the first century, ancient people, maybe they're, maybe they're just gullible. They believe things like miracles. So perhaps that, that's why they can so easily turn to resurrection being the answer. The fact is, though, that people in the first century needed just as much evidence that someone rose from the grave as we might need today. Right? If, if, just for a bit of context, um, when you look at the classical Greco-Roman world, Uh, you can broadly divide um, that world into two ways that people think about life after death. 
Right? There are those on, one, on the one hand who may have wanted a new body after death, but just knew it wasn't possible. And then there were those who um, thought that it was better to, to not have a body, to be disembodied after death. It was actually a preference to not, be, to not have a body. And so in, in the world of, of the Greco-Roman world in the, first, in, in the first century, physical resurrection just wasn't an option. But neither was it an option for the Jews in the first century, right? There's a group of Jews uh, called the Sadducees that, are, that, that believed that there was no such thing as the physical resurrection. Uh, but for the most part, first century Jews, although they believed in, in a bodily resurrection, they believed that it, wouldn't happen, it would happen at the end of time. When God would judge the world and God would remake the world and physically raise the righteous at the end. See, for one man to be raised, not at the end, but in the middle of history, was not an option for ancient Jews. To believe that would be blasphemy. It'd be heresy. It'd go against everything that they understood and believed in their world, in their culture. It would reject everything that they were taught and knew. See, people in the ancient world needed just as much evidence to believe this stuff like we do. So as we come back to Luke, that kind of gives us a bit of color to understanding what's going on. See, the question is, who, who's there at the tomb three days after Jesus died, right? Jesus died on Friday. It's now Sunday. Who's there? None of Jesus' closest disciples are there. A group of women's there, but, but the, tw- the, the, the close disciples aren't there. The most intimate group of followers aren't there. Surely, you know, Jesus told them so many times that he's going to rise. Surely one of them might go to the tomb and just go, oh, he said it. Maybe we should go check it out. None of them are there. which means in their minds they firmly believe that Jesus was still dead. It means in their minds they probably backed the wrong horse to be king. What about the group of women? What are they doing there? Well, what are they holding? They're holding expensive spices and perfume with them, which was custom to anoint a dead body to mask the odor of its decay. And so everybody thought Jesus was still dead. Nobody's anticipating a resurrection. And yet, at the end of our chapter... We see the risen Jesus in verse 52 being worshipped. See, almost overnight, these followers' view on whether Jesus was dead or alive radically changed. And it wasn't just their view that changed, their lives radically changed. And they dedicated their lives to telling and showing this to the point that within a few generations, even at the cost of their lives and their social standing, their faith spread throughout all the known world and transformed the Roman Empire. What could explain that? What explains it is the fact that we're given in Luke 24. That Jesus rose. That Jesus appeared to them. That Jesus spoke to them. And that it was so obvious that it could not be denied. And that meant giving up everything they previously knew and held to. See, we're all familiar with you know facts that could just be stubborn, right? Facts that are just, uh, you know, they're like a like a, a wall, they're just there. Like you see a wall, you don't run into it, it's just there. You have to deal with it, you have to go around it, it's, you don't just smash it, right? Facts are stubborn like a wall. They force us to change and adapt and, and to move and to, and to give up things that we previously held to. And we've just looked at one thread of evidence that collectively weaves together to give weight to the resurrection of Jesus. A collection of evidence that together is weightier compared to the evidence of many events in ancient history that we take for granted to be true. 
See, friends, the hope of the empty tomb is believable. So would you look into it? If you remove for a moment the assumption that miracles like the resurrection just don't happen, they simply can't happen, the empty tomb, the resurrection, is by far the best explanation for it. One writer puts it like this, it's not going to be on the screen, but one writer puts it like this, and I really like it. If we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what it did hit the disciples, what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. So if we don't believe the resurrection, the fact that it was just as impossible of an event for first century people as it is for us means that we have to be at least willing to concede that there was something that was just as amazing, that was just as transformative, that was just as stubbornly and factually paradigm-shifting to cause people to give up everything they knew and held to. And if you're willing to reach that conclusion, well, I want to say that that's just as great of a leap of faith that the Bible gives as, as its conclusion through first-person testimony. And that's that Jesus rose from the dead. But the hope of the empty tomb is not just believable. The hope from the empty tomb is also uh, beautiful. And it's beautiful because of three reasons. Uh, it's beautiful because it removes the ultimate sting. Uh, it's beautiful because it's personal. And it's beautiful because it's certain. So it's beautiful because it removes the ultimate sting. See, right at the beginning of our time today, we talked about hope as something in the future. Something in the future that we strongly desire and expect will fulfill uh, us that then shapes our today. See, when we talk about our futures, um, there is really nothing more final in our future than, than at the end of our lives. How, how do we see, how does what we see at the end of our lives impact our present now? See, if at the end of our lives, um, as many people believe, there's, there's nothing more, that's it, then our today should all be about this life and making the most of it, right? Because there's nothing to fear after death. There's nothing there. If there's nothing more, why worry? Another view is if at the end of our lives there's a reincarnation of some form, or maybe we, we just become a part of the, the, the universe, the all-soul perhaps, as certain beliefs believe, then our present life is all about doing good to make sure we get the best possible reincarnation so that we have nothing to fear. Or, uh, like I said, we become part of the all soul, we become soil for, for, for crops in the future, there's nothing to fear. But yet, deep within ourselves, if we are truly expressing how we feel about death, uh, we know that there's something wrong with it. We know that death has a sting still, even though we believe some of those things. It's just like we know that violence is inevitable, inevitable because of evolution and natural selection, yet we can't escape the feeling that there's something wrong with violence. And a popular philosopher wrote about a seven-year-old boy who lost his cousin when his cousin was three. And he went to his mum and, and he asked his mum, Mum, where's my cousin? Now, uh, mum didn't believe in God, didn't believe in an afterlife, and so she gave him an answer uh, in line of, with what she believed. Right? And so she told her son, uh, son, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all come. 
Death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth spring new flowers next year, you can know that it is your cousin's life fertilizing those flowers. Now, at one level, that's, that's kind of beautiful. But how does the boy respond? The boy screams. And he yells, I, I don't want him to be fertilizer. And he runs away in tears. See, his response, and perhaps our response, when we feel how wrong death is, even though our brains might say otherwise, is captured really brutally by this guy called Carl Jung. He writes that death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It's brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so psychically. A human being is torn away from us. And what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. The sting of death isn't dealt with properly at the depths of who we are by many of our popular beliefs today. But friends, if the tomb is really empty, if Jesus is really alive, what that tells you and me is that death really does not need to be the end. Just as death was not the end for Jesus, death does not need to be the end for you. There is life beyond the grave. And if that's true, that's beautiful news. Why? Well, super quickly, one way that this is beautiful news is because everything that we do now, everything we do now that promotes life, that preserves life, that builds life, things that are good, things that are selfless, things that are for our society, they're not ends in themselves. It brings a deeper meaning for doing good and promoting life. If death isn't the end, those good things will not stop for us when we die. And for those who receive those things, well, that doesn't need to be the end for them either when they die. It means we can give uh, our present life to life-giving things completely. Because death isn't the end. But the flip side is also true. It means that if this is true, then our lives, if they're lives that are, that, that are hard, if our lives are difficult, if our lives are, are ones of grief and suffering... If death is not the end, much like this, the, the, the African community that we talked about earlier, if death is not the end, if there's life to come, we can more bearably endure our present. Because we know that this isn't all, all that's it. This isn't all life will be. This isn't, this isn't shallow optimism. This isn't self-help, self-talk. Death does not need to be the end. Its sting is dealt with if the tomb is empty. Secondly, the hope from the empty tomb is beautiful uh, because it's personal. Right, let's, have, let's have another look at Luke 24 uh, from verse 36. We, we'll read from verse 36 to verse 43. You've got that in front of you. Have, have another read with me. Uh, Luke chapter 24 from verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. Um, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. 
And while they still do not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Uh, this hope goes further than simply that death is not the end. See, what type of life do we get a hint of from these passages? The future, according to Jesus, is the resurrection will be personal. It will be personal. And, and this isn't symbolism here. Right? When we read this, Luke the writer doesn't want us to come to the conclusion that somehow we're meant to see this collective group in this home all, all imagine Jesus at the same time eating some barramundi with them and metaphorically draw meaning from it. That's not Luke's point. That's not what he's trying to do. What we are meant to see is that the empty tomb means that Jesus is still a person, which includes all aspects of being a person. It means he's physical. It means he's relational. It means he wants to eat. And so Jesus says, it is, my, it is myself. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. See, friends, just like in agriculture where the first harvest of fruit tells you what the rest of the crop will look like, Jesus' life after death shows us what our lives after death will ultimately look like. See, we too will be physical. We will be able to relate and love. That doesn't end. We will be able to eat. All the things that can be enjoyed from our personal and physical lives now can also be enjoyed in the future to its fullest. Our future will be one that includes personal relationships and personal love. And even more amazingly, it tells us that God desires to give himself to us, personally relate with us, and relate with others. See, why is this beautiful news? It affirms why we long for wholesome families and why we want to build wholesome families. It affirms why we long for meaningful friendships and want to build meaningful friendships. It affirms our need to be loved and to give love to others. These things matter because these things don't end, they last. Those relationships that we cherish now don't need to end and can be had more fully. Those relationships that we yearn for but don't presently have will be experienced perfectly. And all this can be for you if Jesus' tomb is empty. The hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it's personal. But friends, what good is the beauty of the empty tomb if we can't be sure? You know, it's all well and good. Cool. Sting of death is gone. Cool. Personal. Great. But I don't even know if that's my future. How do I know? How can I be sure? And I think what Jesus tells the disciples right at the end of Luke 24 hints at an answer. How the disciples can be certain and therefore how we can be certain. Have, have a look uh, right at the end of the passage that, we, that Julie read for us, uh, from v- verses 46. Jesus told them in verse 46, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. See, from these three verses, what is the role of Jesus? And what is the role of the disciples? What's Jesus do? Jesus is the one who who does everything. He's the one who suffers. He's the one who died on the cross. And by dying, he's the one who took the consequences of mankind, ruining relationship with God. 
And because he's the one who rose from the dead on the third day, he told the world that the consequences of death have been defeated. That personal relationship with God could be had again. And that it was all accomplished because of him. And what's the role of the disciples? Well, their role is to see. They're witnesses. They're witnesses who've seen everything. Their role is to tell others. They're preachers and proclaimers of these things. In other words, while Jesus does everything, the disciples are kind of like passive responders. See, friends, Jesus gifted this future to his disciples. The disciples can be certain that the resurrection was their future because it was Jesus who was the one who did everything to get it. It's his tomb that's empty. Jesus is the one who gifted this future to them. And the same is true for us. We can be sure that this is our future, not because we do anything, not because we somehow add to it. We can be completely certain that this is our future because Jesus' tomb is empty and he has given this future to us if we, like the disciples, believe and accept this gift. In a way, Jesus' resurrection is a bit like a store receipt that you keep after a gift has been given to you. That receipt tells everybody that that item is yours. Jesus' resurrection tells you that the gift of your future with him is yours. See, friends, it's remarkable that in every way, all we need to do is look back at the first resurrection to know what our futures are guaranteed to be if we believe it and accept it to be true. The hope of the empty tomb is certain. It's ours because it's gifted to us. And this is a great assurance to know that our futures can't be taken away. And so as uh, I invite the band to come up, um, the hope of the empty tomb is stronger and more functional than any hope we have offered to us. It's a hope that's beyond our world. It's believable. It's beautiful. See, uh, Julia, when she was sharing her story, publicly wanted to tell us that this is the hope that she has. And she wanted to share that with us. If you've been invited by a friend or a family member, they want to share that hope with you. That's why they invited you. Friends, the hope of the empty tomb is a hope that gives us the resources to deal with grief. It gives us profound reason to do good and promotes life because death isn't the end. It's a hope that values love and relationship with each other and with God because they don't end. And it's a hope we can be absolutely certain of because it's given as a gift and not earned. Don't you want a hope like that? And even if you don't believe it, don't you want it to be true? If any of what we've talked about today intrigues you, if it appeals to you in any way, can I invite you to explore the hope that comes from the empty tomb of Jesus? Happy Easter.